Welcome to another episode of the Accounting Insider. This is your host, Kim Nitschke. Today, I'm sitting down with longtime friend of mine, Bill Brown. Now, I've known Bill, I think, for like 30 years. Um, I've always been in awe of Bill, and I'm not exaggerating. He has been an entrepreneur, and he's been a farmer that's been always renowned for thinking outside the square. Finally confronted him recently because we've been working on some stuff together, and Every time I catch up with him, I think, what a fascinating person. And this podcast is all about interviewing fascinating people. Um, He's actually a beekeeper by trade, which is bizarre, I know. I don't usually bump into those sorts of people, but he has grown to be the largest beekeeper in South Australia. Today's podcast, we delve into beekeeping and all things regarding beekeeping. And I think there's lessons in there for everything. So please don't stop listening just because I've said beekeeping. I think you'll find today's podcast absolutely fascinating we talk about the way he's grown his business where he started from humble beginnings to growing it into such a large operation today the ups and downs of that industry we also talk about something which is really unique and it's a strategy that he's used to buy farms and how he pays for those farms and a really different concept to making income off of those farms let's jump into the show this is the accounting insider show so this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, you, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. And you just make so much money out of it. Okay, welcome to another episode. Today I'm sitting down with Bill Brown. Bill is a farmer. I've always dreamt of being a farmer. Bill is actually a really interesting guy. He's actually a beekeeper. Now, uh, that is totally bizarre because beekeepers are a bizarre type of person. Um, But you've grown to be the largest beekeeper or honey producer in South Australia or Australia? In South Australia. South Australia, okay. Um, But... Apart from that, you've also you've got a deep history in farming. Um, you love your farming. You've built up a number of properties that you own, and you do different things on all those properties. But today, I want to just go back, Bill, and talk about where it all started. Where'd you go to school? Hello, all. Um, I went to school to start with at a place called Cambrai Area School at the foothills in um, South Australia, the Brossa Valley. Um, and at that age, when I was um, six years old, I remember coming home from school one day in the summertime and there was a swarm of bees that settled in the backyard on a, an apricot tree, I can remember. And um, was pretty fascinated, my sister and myself and my two brothers, and we thought that'd be a good idea to, um, to leave that swarm there for about a week because it was building some honeycomb. And um, it'd be nice to get a bit of honey from that, from that hive. So... One afternoon, we left it there and we kept an eye on it and it started building honeycomb and um, we could see the honey in it. And one night, we went out and we sprayed all the bees off this off this swarm with a hose. So they were saturated. The poor bees actually died. But then we then we knocked the, the honeycomb out of the tree and we put it in a in a fly, fly wire um, screen. And it was hot weather, it was in the summertime. And so next morning, we hanged up the um, honeycomb with all the dead bees and, and wax and everything else squashed together in a tree 
with a bucket underneath it. And I can remember watching the honey dripping from the fly wire into the bucket. And I think I was seven at the time. And for some reason I had this inbuilt um, fascination with bees that I've never lost. I'm currently um, 46 years old, but I remember when I was seven years old seeing this honey dripping into a bucket. And from there, um, my parents weren't um, beekeepers. I was a first generation beekeeper, so to put it. There used to be quite a few extra beekeepers around um, uh, back in those times, smaller farms and everyone supplementary the income with a few cows and a lot of people had bees and different things. So I had the um, opportunity to work for a lot of different beekeepers, retirees, travelled around South Australia quite extensively with different people from the age of, I'd say, 12 years old. Um, I remember going through the Brosser Valley, going to the Clare Valley um, on the blue gum and the red gum, and, and I just found everything about bees quite fascinating, although at the time, as a kid, I'd, I had this fascination with being on farms as well. Um, I liked being... Um, uh, going out with people and rounding up sheep and working in wool sheds on, in my school holidays. And from Cambrai, um, we shifted to a place halfway between Swan Reach and Loxton out in the Mallee. Very dry, arid area, only about a 12-inch rainfall. It was, it was quite a bit different than Cambrai. But, um, and I went to the East Murray Area School, which is a very small school, only 90 children and 13 teachers. Um, but I felt like I got a good education from there. It was very much a rural school and... Um, 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 very in tune with agriculture and, and the environment. I feel like I've got a bit of a, a contact, a connection to the environment as well. I deprive, I've always deprived my, my income off of prime production and mainly beekeeping. Um, so, you know, not only do you got to um, know bees, but you've got to be a botanist, you've got to be an environmentalist, you've got to know where chemicals are being used and where they're not. And um, you're just gained a love of the bush and being outdoors can i interrupt for a moment please um the whole bee industry like it seems to have gone nuts right lately like you, you know um there's nothing to see apartment buildings with um a window that opens over a street they'll have a couple of pot plants and then they might have a beehive or something yes you, you know like you see that all the time on instagram and and, and, and a lot in the media, it, and people are moving towards having their own little beehive in their backyard. Have, have you seen this sort of like a, a recent trend in that sort of... For sure, yeah. Now, there's definitely a lot more interest in beekeeping, um, I, I'd say, over the last 10 years. I think the media's done a very good job in, in publicising the, the devastating effects of the varroa mite internationally, which has helped my profession as well. It was a pretty hard slog being a commercial beekeeper, and when I first started beekeeping, um, yeah, just the price of the honey wasn't there. There was a time where I had um, 18 months worth of honey that I couldn't even sell because there was gluts of honey around the world. America, for instance, they, they supplied 30% of the world market um, with honey up until seven years ago. But since having varroa mite in the last two years, they are an importer of honey. So there's just not the oversupply of honey on the world market. But with that... Um, um, the media has done a good job and published on how important the bees are. The, the almond industry in California especially is 99% reliant on cross-pollination by European honeybees to pollinate their almond crop. 
no bees, no almonds. And now we've got a shift of Americans coming to the Riverland in South Australia and investing heavily into the almond industry. And almonds are going nuts here at the moment, aren't they? And that's because they're having a big time um, pollinating the almond trees overseas. They just an almond tree, the just the characteristics of a of uh, an almond flower um, has to be pollinated evenly around the stigma of the flower. If it's wind pollinated and the wind only touches one side of the flower, that's where you get a dimple effect on any fruit, whether that's an, an apple, a pear, a cherry, or an almond. And if it doesn't look quite right, it's a second grade product which gets a price discount. So. European honeybees are the only insect that's got um, that are designed um, for pollen. They need to have pollen to, to survive. They can't just survive on, on honey. They need to have pollen. So they're the best pollinators in the world. Without bees, we just don't get the crops that the farm's looking for. My dad told me this the other day, and you're going to laugh at this question, but he said that he was having coffee with his mates at Harndorf one morning, and they were sitting around the table, and they said, they couldn't think of a beekeeper that had died of cancer. Mm. Do you know any? I don't know of any beekeepers that died of cancer. I don't know of any beekeepers with arthritis. Every beekeeper that I know lives to at least that 80. Um, <laughs> they are definitely a unique, unique breed of people. We shift our bees at night time when everyone else is sleeping because they'll um, fly off the truck and not fly their way home. Um, very much seasonal. We travel the countryside looking for liquid gold. And it has... Oh, it's, um, I quite often look at it as very character building. We have flat tyres and all sorts of things, truck problems, people okay. getting stung. It's okay. quite interesting. Okay. Um, now, you've got semi-trailers, one semi-trailer that transports up to 3,000 hives all mm. around the countryside. No, we have about five or six tray-top trucks, about eight-tonne trucks. And we put on 112 hives, which is a load, and we, we tow an off-road forklift um, behind those trucks. Um, just semi-trailers would have a hard time getting access in and out of the sites because we go to the most isolated areas because um, farmers don't like their bees in high traffic areas. So we normally get put at the back of the farm where no one's going to interfere with your bees or the bees interfere with them. So just getting back, sorry, I lost my train of thought before. With the, with the hives, if people are living in the city on, let's just say, a 600 square metre house block, Yes. can you go to Bunnings or your supermarket, buy a beehive and put it in the backyard and start getting your own honey? No, not so much Bunnings, but there are people that you can buy beekeeping equipment from where you're allowed, I think in the in the council area here in Adelaide, I think you're allowed two hives in your backyard unless there's a complaint of a nuisance by a neighbour. But there are, um, councils have got um, protocols that you're supposed to abide by in the okay. way of keeping water in them. Where do you buy the hive from? Um, the, the hive itself, the bees, has to be bred off a, 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 an existing hive. A so queen. I've got to come to you and buy a hive off of you? Yes. Are people basically. approaching you doing that? No. Well, they try to, but I don't I don't. You don't do sell that. Any. I don't sell I'm busy enough doing what I'm doing, producing honey. Okay, there are business. different sites where you can buy bee box equipment and then you can buy queen bees. And I buy about three to 4,000 queens a year in the mail that come from um, um, the north north coast of New South Wales. And so every week I get about 150 queen bees delivered to me. And Sorry, did you say they arrive in the mail? In the mail, each week. Yes, that's right. But the, the theory of that one is that um, the younger the queen, the more eggs she'll lay. The more eggs she lays, the more bees we got, more bees we got, more honey we got, and ultimately more money with more honey. So... We want to have a young queen that's laying plenty of eggs. So, so if I've got this, if I've gone online, found where you buy the hive, put it in my backyard, buy the bee 
the queen, the queen bee, yes, offline, uh, online as yes. well. She arrives in the mail. Yes. How much is she going to cost me? About twenty five dollars for the queen. But you've got to have a few bees to go collect them, the honey. So where do I get them from? Well, you've got to. That's why you've got to buy a hive of bees and split them, and then you put a queen in. Can't I do it DIY? Go down to no, sorry. You know the flowers in the field and pinch them. <laughs> no, you can't do that. They won't. They won't move in. <laughs> no, no. No, there's a little bit more to it than that. It is quite interesting, but there is plenty of associations it, that can help you in books. Okay, so I was walking down the street the other day, and I did see a like a nest yes and it was all marked on the road with signs and everything a swarm yes a swarm sorry yeah. can I get that and put it in the you could shake it in a box if you ask your local council because many people uh, lots of people ring up and ask their council where's the local beekeeper and if you put your name down with the council and they'll um, and you've got your bee box you just go and catch that swarm and uh, I'll get will I get bit, bit you, you will <laughs> <laughs> what do I wear those big moon suits yes you can do that yeah, and that will sure. stop me getting bitten yes how many times have you been bitten? Lots. Thousands. Yes. And are, you, are you ever allergic? Like, do, is there a tolerance with your body? or you No, just... no. The more bee, once bee venom's in your blood system, a, a certain percentage of it stays there to the day you die. So more bee stings you get, the more antibodies are in your body, building up a resistance to bee venom. So, so it actually it gets easier over time? It gets easier. Okay. Well, Natalie, my partner, is here, and quite often I'll come home and she'll pick the stings out of my hand that I don't even know I've had. I could get two or three hundred stings a day. Wow. And I just flick them out. So yeah. Amazing. Um, now, can we just talk about Manuka honey, please? Now, can I just paint the picture for those people? Because we've had this story before and I find this fascinating. But correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a certain type of honey that you can use as a disinfectant on hospitals which have been in India, which have been on the brink of closing down because of all the... The um, golden staffs and diseases and yeah. golden staff and everything that's in them. Yes. Patients can't move in because they're going to get infected straight away. Yes. Whereas people are finding nowadays that if they go in and they put this honey into the actual mopping bucket, mop all the floors and walls and everything, it actually penetrates the lino, this honey and the antibodies in it, mm. if I'm wrong, and it will neutralize the disease. Yes, there's a special um, enzyme in Manuka honey, but there is actually the same enzyme in different varieties of honey. It's all a pretty new thing that's coming about. When I say new, the the Romans um, and the Egyptians, they when they dug up the pyramids in Egypt, which there was honey there ready for the afterlife that had been 3,000 years old, they'd done some tests on that honey. And they found a resemblance to the honey or the testing of that honey, found the same enzyme in, in Manuka, most commonly known as Manuka honey, or um, it's been marketed as Medi honey. A lot of chemists have got it. Capilano have been marketing as Medi honey. They've joined forces recently with um, a firm called Convita. Um, but basically Manuka honey, um, which there's about 80 different varieties in in Australia and only about four in New Zealand. Um, the ones in New Zealand have got activity. But of the 80 varieties in Australia, there's about seven varieties that have got this enzyme which make it active honey. And that active honey, all honeys are antibacterial, so bacteria doesn't grow in any honey, um, as long as it hasn't been heat treated or diluted, as long as it's in natural form. Um, but there's an enzyme in Manuka honey that um, has got very good healing properties and for all sorts of things. Um, mainly the, the Sydney's burn unit, which is Australia's national um, um, 
hospital for treating burns victims. Um, they've tested Manuka honey over a three-year period and their conclusion, um, which come back, was that um, the, the healing time was, was half the time of, of treating patients just with antibiotics. Um, the scar tissue was reduced by 80%. And to the extent now that the Sydney's burn unit um, in New South Wales uses a lot of Manuka honey or Medi honey. And um, there's quite a few different talks from all around the world how there's different countries, um, and, and you just mentioned about India, they had all sorts of um, um, viruses in their hospitals which were condemned and they were ready to be demolished. And um, I just did read one article how they used this um, active um, active honey and um, yeah, mopped it on concrete floors and the enzyme in this honey actually ate and, and this bacteria has disappeared. So it is very unique. But they, and they've opened the hospital up again. Yes. Yeah, there's, if you Google it, you can see that what they've done and, and they put it all just down to active manuka. But there seems to be a, um, um, the, the, the Egyptians and the Romans, even the Romans when they went around conquering the world, they didn't have medical units with them. They just carried wagons full of honey. And they've, and they've since found that that honey that they took with them because it's antibacterial, it battle wounds, if someone lost an arm or leg, they used to wrap, the, wrap their wounds in honey um, and because it was antibacterial, infections wouldn't grow. And they and they believe that the Roman Empire, that's they didn't have doctors, they just carried wagons of honey with them, this high-activity honey. So there has, it has gone back through history that there is activity in certain honeys that definitely have got healing properties. So normal honey is how much retail per kilo? Normal ballpark. Ballpark. Well, that's a bit of a funny one as well to, to gauge because there's a lot of imported honey that's coming in Australia because our premium product, clean, um, anti-chemical honey, chemical-free, I should say, chemical-free honey is exported to niche markets all around the world. We're only consuming, last time I read, about 20% of our own honey. Most of it's exported um, because it's, it's a premium product that's used all around the world. But there is a lot of imported honey that comes into Australia that's diluted, that the major companies use, um, which um, it makes it hard for local packers to be competitive with. Okay, so let's just say we go into the supermarket and we buy Australian honey. Yes. What are we paying a kilo? Normally you're paying about $12 to $15 per kilogram in a one kilogram lot. And Manuka? It has been known to be retailed in Germany recently for $170 a kilogram. And is it readily accessible in Australia? Where not, do we get manuka honey from? Manuka honey um, is in um, is in its infancy of, of okay. finding out where these are, areas are. But there is the main area it seems to be between Rockhampton on the coast, all down the eastern states to Tasmania. However, production in different areas like Tasmania, for instance, when the manuka flares, um, it's too cold the bees to work. If it goes too far north, too much humidity. And if, if honey is not um, evaporated properly, um, which is called nectar, and that's what the bees get out of the trees is nectar, which is 90% moisture, the activity um, drops away. So honey has to be, and that's why when they dug up the pyramids and it was 3,000 years old, it was in its natural form that had been cut by wax, which means it's under 16% moisture, because if it's not under 16% moisture, eventually it will turn to alcohol, because that's what alcohol is, water, sugar and water that ferments. So it's natural form. When it crystallises, it can be 3,000 years old. And they melted it and tasted it, and they couldn't tell a difference in the taste. 3,000 years. I'm fascinated by the whole honey story, but we're going to talk property. Mm. A lot of our people listening are big 
property investors, supporters, wannabe investors. Yes. Uh, let's talk about farms. And I think that the whole bee thing ties in nicely because I think it was through your beekeeping connections that you found some property um, in outback New South Wales, I think it is. That's right. Um, where you actually went in and bought um, some property. You've now um, secured it and you are in a carbon trading emissions scheme. Can you tell us a little bit about that deal, please? Well, it started off with always being a beekeeper. And when I was younger, I worked for beekeepers that used to go to a place called um, the Paru River, which is north of Wool, Kenya, in the northwestern corner of New South Wales. Um, and at the age of 14, I think I was, when I went out there, I, I had this um, um, connection with that area. It, it was it's isolated. It's very remote. Um, but um, I initially went there working for beekeepers and from that to gained a fair bit of experience being there um, on three or four different occasions um, and as I got older um, I ended up buying a bee business which is at Wanaring um, on the Paru River um, totally organic the closest crops grown to there is Burke which is um, 230 k's away so um, and the reason why I went there looking to buy a bee business is I thought there was some activity and some plants there that would produce um, much the same as, as Manuka honey, um, which there was, but because of seasonal conditions, um, it really hasn't been all that successful there. Um, we've since bought farms in South Australia um, to, to plant active varieties of Manuka, which this last year we planted 9,000, but um, getting off track a bit, we're, we're still in New South Wales. While I had the, the bee farm in, um, in Wanaring, um, I bought a property called Nantilla in Gardenvale. Um, at the time, I always regret selling Gardenvale, but it had to be bought as a whole, and I saw it sold Gardenvale to the next door neighbour a week after I bought it. Um, but yeah, I bought Nantilla um, with, the, with the view of um, running a merino flock, which I ran 4,000 ewes there for a three-year period. I've always um, liked keeping sheep, the whole um, merino wool thing, plus the lambs. I just see a, a, a multi-income coming from sheep over, over cattle, where you, once you're sold your steer, it's gone. Sheep are growing wool when you're still sleeping in bed of a night. So I like that idea, um, as well as getting your produce from your lambs as well. So I've seen, always seen sheep as, as have um, two sources of income, which I thought was good. But over the time of having the, the sheep farm, I looked into a um, carbon, which was pretty new to the area, um, a place called Wanaring Station, which is on the outskirts of Wanaring, was the first carbon farm generating um, carbon emissions um, in, in Australia's history, um, which was only about 50 k's north of, of Nantilla. And I talked to the manager there, and it, it fascinated me to think that you could destock your land, um, and in dry times the sheep would eat mulga um, bushes, which is, that was the only thing they could survive on in the end, and cattle as well. Um, and mulga is a very unique plant that absorbs something like 40 to 70 times more carbon and converts it to oxygen than any other plant, just because it's in a dry environment. And when it does rain, um, plants need carbon to grow. 
and it keeps absorbing carbon for a lot longer period of time than than all other eucalypts so um, we decided uh, between um, carbon and sheep because I just didn't see how you could run the sheep and um, regenerate these these um, mulga trees over a large area so um, I entered a carbon trading emission scheme with the, with the Australian government um, which I signed a contract for 10 years hoping there will be renewed after the 10-year contract for a further 15 years and that's been operating for three years and I think it's been a, a a good thing not only financially for me but also for the environment I do believe in global warming I do believe that we need to do something in regards of conservation I've derived my income from the environment and I feel in some way that um, it's reinvesting back into that so you you are getting paid a check from the government to not have any animals on your property that's right yes and there's about 40 uh, 40, I think there's 70 different carbon projects in that area between the Hungerford, Ulay, Hungerford. Um, yeah, it's, it's, in a, it's in a niche area because that, um, um, yeah, just mainly for the environment, I'm thinking. There's a lot of different areas in Australia where the government is, is sort of linked up with OPEC in some way. I, I don't understand it intimately, but... The Australian government to be able to dig up fossil fuels and sell that fuel to the rest of the world has to has to neutralise the amount of carbon greenhouse gases getting burnt through carbon plants, whether it be rubbish dumps, solar power, or whatever, um, and and that's that's in return to entering the OPEC agreement, which they only buy fossil fuels from countries that contribute to the the carbon plan. So countries like Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, where there was a world glut of oil on about two years ago, that was because car, um, fossil fuel burning countries weren't allowed to buy their fuel. Since then, they've entered the agreement, and that's why this money's come available um, to them. Um, and I think that's a reason why the Australian government is opening up more coal, coal um, mining in Queensland, because um, pre that, they had an obligation to um, OPEC that um, they, they had to neutralise. And I think the Australian government thought that places like Tasmania and the eastern states generated enough um, enough neutralising of the carbon or the fossil fuels were burning um, to be able to cover that. But it's since been learnt that the whole of Tasmania, the 200 k's within the eastern states from Melbourne to Brisbane, actually generate more carbon in the atmosphere because those trees have reached a what they call a, um, an old forestation stage, where they stop growing, so then they stop neutralising carbon to oxygen. All right, that, that's fantastic. So just wrapping up on that, what you're actually saying is that you're making a lot more money with this um, agreement, with this lease, that you've, the deal that you've signed with the government, way more than you're ever making from your merinos. Yes. And it, it well and truly covers your interest cost of that property. Yes. And, you know, I guess it contributes to some sort of capital repayment, which is brilliant. In, in addition to that, you've told me before we press record that um, you've also got to um, get rid of the goats every now and then yes. that come on the property. Yes. So you get income from that as well. So, I mean, that is one tremendous way of getting a great farm income yes. through something that a lot of people have never even thought of. No. Anyway, I know that time is very precious. You've got to race off to another appointment, but thank you, Bill Brown, for being part of this podcast today. It's yes. been fantastic talking to you. Sounds good. Thank you for listening.